Hi there, and welcome to the Everyday Millionaire Podcast. My name is Patrick Francie, and I'm the CEO of the Real Estate Investment Network. In addition to being a business owner, I'm also a real estate investor, I'm a coach, I'm a husband, I'm a very proud grandfather. And along with that, I'm also committed to stretching beyond what I've already achieved and of living a fulfilled life by continuing to make a positive difference in the world. I invite you to join me to listen in on the Everyday Millionaire podcast as I interview and have conversations with seemingly ordinary individuals who have achieved some pretty extraordinary results, whether it be in their life, in their business, in real estate. And it's here where I'm going to delve into the details of their journey, along with the paths they've traveled to get where they are today and, as importantly, where they intend to go in the future. My guests are here to inspire. They're here to help you learn by talking about what's real for them, both in their wins and in their challenges, from the life and the lifestyle they live to the person they had to become along the way in creating and building their financial futures for themselves and their families. Before I begin this episode, I'll start by first thanking you for listening in and for your support and the feedback you provide us on the show, as well as to ask you to please continue to send your comments, your suggestions, or your questions directly to me at CEO at RainCanada.com. That is CEO at R-E-I-N-Canada.com. And if you're inclined, please share this podcast with your friends, your family, and with people you know, or perhaps even people you don't know. Rate the show and comment on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or whatever platform you happen to use to listen in. And while you're at it, please follow me on the Everyday Millionaire Facebook page. So thanks again for the feedback you provide us. It's definitely appreciated. Okay, let's get on with this show and have a conversation with today's guest. My guest, Christy Hunter R. Scott, is an award-winning advisor, speaker, and author of her book, Begin Boldly, How Women Can Reimagine Risk, Embrace Uncertainty, and launch a brilliant career. Christy is a leading expert on how we can harness the power of intentional risk-taking to create more dynamic and vibrant careers and organizations. A Rhodes Scholar, Christy has been named by Thinkers50 as one of the top management thinkers likely to shape the future of business. And in addition to that, Christy was also selected to the shortlist of the biannual Thinkers50 Talent Award, which honors the top global thought leaders in the field of talent management. Christy holds a bachelor's degree in political science from Brown University, a certificate of distinction in general management from Stanford University Graduate School of Business, and two master's degrees with a focus on gender research from the University of Oxford. She currently serves on the Women's Leadership Board of the Women and Public Policy Program at Harvard Kennedy School. And with all of that in mind, which is a lot, she is an engaging, open, and absolutely inspiring guest who shares her journey to the top and many valuable insights that she's learned along the way given today's workforce. Let's get this show started. Christy Hunter Arscott, welcome to the Everyday Millionaire Podcast. So pleased to meet you and uh, really happy that you've joined me on the show. Great. Thanks so much for having me. So I asked the question, where are you based? Where are you uh, calling in from? And you go, oh, nothing special, just Bermuda. And yeah. uh, so that's fantastic. So we're going to talk a little bit more about that uh, coming up. You know, given that your intros 
the interest of all my guests, you know, I don't get into it real deep because I like to really go on this path of discovery with my guests. And of course, for my listeners, further than what I gave for an intro, tell me a little bit, if I say to you, what is your, uh, what do you do? If I say, Christy, what do you do? What's your answer to that question these days? So the way that I frame it is that my career is dedicated to helping women build bold and brilliant careers. And in parallel with that, though, I don't just focus on the individual. I also focus on the organization. So it's also focused on helping leaders build really dynamic and vibrant organizations where women and underrepresented talent and any employee can rise and thrive. So those are really my two kind of main focus areas. So you are an author. You did uh, write a book called Begin Boldly. And tell me a little bit about why the focus on women. I want to I unpack that. I love this conversation, by the way. <laughs> well, I mean, I'll tell you a couple of things is one, many of the tools in this book and, and the core concepts can be applicable to anyone, irrespective of gender or career level. And so although I'm trying to solve a specific need, which I will explain more, you know, it's been amazing to me since the book came out, which was August 2nd, just the overwhelming response I've had from men and from individuals at more senior levels in their careers. So if you're on this line and thinking, this is not for me, um, I'd say, hold on, because uh, there's lots of relevant content. In terms of why women specifically, though, what I realized in kind of my work in the gender space was that the majority of strategies targeted at women in the workplace are targeted at women at senior management executive levels, and it's too little too late. And we're ignoring this kind of broad base of women that are in the first 10 to 15 years of their careers and not giving them the tools and support that they need to really navigate the workplace in a meaningful way. And one thing my study showed were that women were shying away from risk even more than their male peers or saying they're just waiting till they're ready or they have enough experience or when this happens, I'll take this bold move. And if that sounds like you, that's really what this book is about, about addressing those fears and really moving through them and giving you a framework and a method for risk taking. So what is the gap that you see? So you saw a gap somewhere, hence... Sure. I'm going to write this book. I'm going to give insights. And if, you know, is, is it, I'm, I'm not assuming anything. Is there some workbook part of it? So is there questions? Do this, read that. Like, do you have that? Is it also? <laughs> yeah, I actually have the book in front of me. Let me just see if I can find it. So it's um, every chapter ends with a, a couple of things and, and I'll, I'll talk to you about this. And the reason why is what I heard from women when I went out there was, that inspiration is fleeting, but actions enduring. They read a book and they say, well, so now what? What do I do now? Um, they go to a conference and they feel inspired, but they're like, well, how do I put this into practice? And then I also heard from them that, you know, I'm inspiring to being bold and, and taking risks, but I'm having trouble translating that into action. So I view this as not a book. I view it as a curriculum, a toolkit. And every chapter has an aspiration to action exercise at the end to help you apply the insights in the chapter and a risk reward refine repeat exercise, which is part of the framework of the book to help you get in the ritual of doing that. And it's structured that way. So it's very actionable, very practical. And that kind of workbook is built in. Fantastic. So 
let's go back to where I want to kind of enter the conversation is what was the gap that you saw? Now, when I hear about women in the workplace or I hear these kind of conversations, this isn't Kristen, this is my old school, you know, I'm, I'm of yeah. that age. And, you know, the first thing I, you know, think about perhaps is, you know, whatever the song was, I think it was Helen Reddy, you know, saying, I am woman, you know, it was like, it was an old song out of the seventies was, was spoke to independence of women and, you know, I am woman. And that's where I, my brain goes. That's not to say that's what I believe I'm saying and suggesting that there's a gap here that you saw, you decided you needed to fill it. So tell me a little bit about the gap. Yeah. So there were a couple of different needs I wanted to, you know, solve through this book. And the first was that there was a clear gap between, like I mentioned, the aspirations and actions of women. And so there was almost like a gap in, we want a prescriptive method, something like a how to take action. And that was one thing that was really, really critical. The other piece was really around having a framework or method. The fact that we often think about risk as things we need to mitigate or manage or minimize. And then this whole idea of like, actually risks are things you should seek. Your male peers are doing this more. This is why, and this is how you can do it. So that is another piece that was really there. And then the, the final overwhelming though, isn't necessarily a concept. It's the fact that there was a gap in the early career stage. And what I was finding was women were losing aspiration and confidence year two on the job. You know, they're starting with lower salaries and lower titles. And yet we wait until they're in the later stages of their careers or, or mid and say, oh, they left because of babies or they opted out. Well, it's never that simple. And so how do we equip women to navigate the world as it is with the state of play, the way it is it, earlier on? In all of this, and I just want to keep digging into this a little bit for my yeah, own understanding, <laughs> Christy, is that, so first off, I'm blessed. I am surrounded by amazing freaking women. Like, I mean, off the charts, or, you know, top performers in their mid to late 30s and, and of course, older. And I see, I'm, I'm such a huge fan of big, bold women. Like, I, you know, bold, and, and I mean, big in, in how they show up and who yeah. they are and but what you're kind of, what I, I think it seems that you're seeing is that there is a divisiveness in the work force or in the workspace that I, as a guy, am not necessarily aware of. Like I'm oblivious to it. If, mm-hmm. you know, and, and yet I realize that in the writing of this book or in con- some conversations that it still exists. And is it just strictly the, you know, corporate? America slash Canada, or is it in small business and in all levels of business? I mean, th- there's got to be a perception within the environment that's created in a workspace that leaves women, I don't know, minimized and or not up for those promotions or those bigger pay. Or, you know, that's what I'm thinking. So that's yeah. where, I, where I'm trying to get into the kind of the cultural societal things that you're seeing that drove the the book and the need for it because women are nervous or they need guidance or how do I navigate this mess? Yeah. So it's interesting. There are certain things that show up in terms of a gender divide that we can't really explain why women are showing up in certain ways versus others and others that are organizational or societal or cultural standards that, that mean that women are kind of held back. And so They play out in different ways, but I'll give you an, I want to give you a concrete example of something. So many workplaces are male dominated. 
And even the ones that aren't, there's often males at the upper echelons of management or the C-suite because of the structure of the organization or some organizations say because of the talent pool, others it may be because of the division of work at home or lack of family leave or, you know, there's so many different factors. But either way, if you look around most industries, men exist in those upper echelons of management. And even when you look at, let's say, traditionally female roles, as people would label it, like HR or marketing, which some people will still say um, is more of a female path, what you often see is women still at the bottom in the roles, and then the CHRO or the chief marketing officer is a male. Now, what happens is there's something called affinity bias, and there's many of things that hold women back, but affinity bias simply means like, 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 and you're going to gravitate towards like. So if there's predominantly white men at the top of an organization, it's more likely that they're going to give the high value assignments to people they're comfortable with, mentor and sponsor the people that seem like them, have longer and more positive conversations with someone who might share their fraternity, their university, their interests, their sports, whatever it may be, because there's a comfort level, give more actionable feedback to that person. Um, network that person more. And so even just looking at that alone, women have unique challenges in most workplaces because of that lack of affinity and maybe affinity for another group. And I really want to equip them to take risks boldly despite that. I wish I could say, you know, that the state of play was different, but the reality is there's a lot of work for organizations and leaders and societies to do. And I don't want to not put the onus on them and say, oh, the onus for change is on women. Women are the ones that have to change. No, but what I want to do is give women a toolkit to navigate the world as it is right now. There are also certain other things like women are less likely to put themselves up for a job um, that's a stretch opportunity from the HP study onwards. We saw that you know men would apply for roles when they're 60% ready. Women will wait till they're 100 that means that there's, if that's true, and many studies have shown it, women are taking less risks on career roles, and that gap is going to permeate over time. So then how do we equip women to go for those roles, maybe when they're 60, 70% ready, 75? So those are the kind of things I'm trying to address. I love it. You know, I'm going to give you the topic for your next book, I think. Okay. And I, say, <laughs> I say this from my own, you know, limited experience, but here's what I've discovered. As I said before, I'm, uh, I try not to be biased in any way, shape or form when male, female, as a matter of fact, some of my key management team, the majority of my key management team are in fact women. And my point is where I go with this is that as much as we're equipping women in your book, and I think that's awesome. I see what I see for myself is I need a book. Uh I need a book as a male that tells me now I'm blessed because my wife has no problem pointing out (laughs) my shortfalls when it comes to perhaps speaking with treating or, you know, communicating with some of my female team. And she'll point out, she goes, we're women. You can't do that. Don't do that. You know, like, so I'm getting some, you know, guidance from a very powerful woman who understands women, who's coached in that space and plays in that space. But I realize that there's probably a real need for men like me and that are very interested in doing what we believe in. Like I'm, 
like I've had some very, very powerful, cool, awesome women in my businesses. I've been in business for 37 years and I've learned a lot, but if I, if I think early on, it would have been less painful if I would have had some tips and tricks. That's just my, yeah. okay, that's my little rant there. Yeah. Book number two, you know. <laughs> well, in the meantime, before I write book number two, I do want to tell you that some of the insights are in this book. So let me take, awesome. so one thing is, it's interesting when I was on my website, when I'm positioning this, like one of the key groups it's for is for individuals male or female who mentor and coach and develop women. And that's because you can get insights on how to encourage them to take experiments and more risks, how to help look at the language in which you even talk about them. There's a whole chapter about courageous advocacy and how you advocate for others. Hmm. So, and this is particularly important when you kind of overlay the intersectionality of identities like race or sexual preference or religion or other things that may make people feel excluded or at a disadvantage in the workplace. So I think it would be, you know, a great place to start. But in, in all honesty, the majority of leaders I've worked with over the years, because one thing I didn't mention at the beginning was kind of what my career involves. And there's four pillars and one's coaching women, um, one speaking and lectures and custom programs for organizations, educational research and writing, which we've spoken about. And the last is strategic advisory, where I work with leaders to make their organizations more inclusive and help coach them on that inclusivity. And what I found is the majority of leaders have great intent, but those that intent isn't necessarily equating to outcomes in terms of retention and hires. And it sounds like your company has, has figured out a great model, but most people say, you know, I've got great intentions. I want to attract and retain women, but then I dig deeper and they've only had one women in their executive suite in the last 50 years. And my focus, we talked earlier about gaps, is closing the gap between their intentions and their outcomes. And sometimes there's little mindless things that people do, they're unintentional. So often they're micro inequities, right? Which is, you know, giving one person actionable feedback and not the other. Sometimes people will write me to run sessions for the women at their organization and a male CEO of a small business will say, Christy, will you come talk to my girls? I mean, mm -hmm. it's possessive number one and girls, it's just completely reducing to, so, so these are things that always have a chuckle, like, sure, but I think they're <laughs> individuals but, in their own right. So but, yeah, well, it was so true, but it is, you know, most of that stuff, I believe, no, I shouldn't say most, I won't quantify it, but often what I recognize even in myself is to your point is my intention isn't offside, but the way I express it would sometimes be heard the wrong way, even though that had nothing to do with what I meant. So so anyway, so this is such an interesting conversation for me, but I, I want to know a little bit more, Christy, about how you got on this journey, because there's a couple aspects of it. You know, number one is where you got to in, in this, your, we'll call it your career for now, but you're really an entrepreneur. Has that always been the journey you've been on? And, you know, where did you start in terms of saying, wow, you know, given this, given what I'm seeing, I want to take this on. I want to actually make a difference in the world and um, turn it into a business. Cause that's really at some level what you've done. Yeah. It's interesting. I still like, 
identifying as a leader in, in my space or whether it be through thoughts or, you know, where people say thought leader or whether you're contributing to the field of gender research and work and inclusion that I relate with. And I still, I still sometimes struggle to identify myself as an entrepreneur, even though I've been working on with my own business for nine years. And I think it's because I had this conception when I was younger that entrepreneurs um, developed like a distinct product or innovation. You know, I thought of someone developing a post-it or a new like form of technology or an online app. And I really had to almost demystify that notion in my own head to embrace the identity that I am an entrepreneur and that it looks different. You can de deliver value and services to people and still be in that. And really the concept of having a portfolio career is what helped me get there where I have these different aspects of advisory, coaching, writing, speaking in my portfolio career. But for a long time, I thought about myself as, oh, I could be a leader in an organization, but oh, I'm not the innovative you know, entrepreneur. But sometimes we put ourselves in these little boxes that make no sense. And I look back now and I think, gosh, I really, really am. And I really am pushing boundaries and taking risks in different ways and entrepreneurial ways. And I do talk about that a little bit in my book too. Like we put ourselves, we put these limiting beliefs around ourselves. I'm not this. And just how you counter that, your inner critic is so essential to moving forward with risks. You know, it's such a great message and a reminder for anybody. I mean, I've done personal professional development for, you know, most of my life. And, you know, I'm north of 60. I still bump up against those things. We still have those conversations in our own mind and those limiting beliefs. And, you know, yeah. sometimes I look at them and I go, where the hell is that from, you know? <laughs> You know, but having the awareness to even realize that it's a limiting belief or whatever that negative self-talk is. Now, give me a little bit back even further than that, Christy, because I'm always interested in knowing, you know, in the context of the everyday millionaire, it's seemingly ordinary, achieving extraordinary. Yeah. I'm often very curious about, you know, is entrepreneurship, is it nature or is it nurture? Is it something that, you know, as a young lady, you know, young woman growing up, you know, you had parents that were entrepreneurial. What was it? Was there a spark somewhere along the line that you can identify or a fork in the road, so to speak, where you had that realization? Yeah. So for me, it was never, I want to be an entrepreneur. It was what level of impact do I want to have? And what is the best avenue to have that impact? And I always, when I'm working with clients, I always say like, really crystallize your why, like a motivation that matters. And, and, and what is that? And then, and then you can be more flexible on your how. And your how might be multiple different things. It might be being a senior advisor in an organization internally. It might be an external role. But what happened to me was I was working for Deloitte Consulting in the U.S., and I was, I had a great, um, from my mid twenties, I mean, it, I felt like I had such an advantage because of the background and specialization I came in with around gender and inclusion, because there was a big uptick in that demand for work and the desire of the organization to really think innovatively about that internally and externally with their clients. So while a lot of people came in with MBAs or other degrees, which were great, what was questioned initially, like why is Christy doing women's studies with the Rhodes Scholarship? Why is Christy focusing on gender? Actually became one of my major differentiators. Now, when I left, I didn't know what I was going to do automatically. I had saved up so I could decide my next steps. 
but I knew that I wanted to exclusively focus on inclusion and gender issues. And I knew that if I stayed on a track at Deloitte, when you go up through human capital consulting, you have to do a lot of different work. You're not going to do one-time niche. You're going to do, um, you might do, you know, more leadership, succession, career pathing, change, all of those things that come in that bucket. So once I decided I wanted to really have an impact and a specialization in this specific space, then the question was the how. And so I just decided what I wanted to do and why I wanted to do it because I saw these gaps. I saw a lack of a voice in this space that that and it's some different focus for kind of a younger generation. And when I left, I was applying for jobs and I got an offer to go to an Ivy League university and work on research related to this. But at the same time, in parallel, I was getting requests organically for work and services in this space. And I had to talk to a coach and say, you know, what should I do? I have one of the world's leading institutions asking me to work on research related to this, or I could start my own business. And this mentor of mine, he said to me, you know, what kind of impact do you want to have on the world? And do you think you're going to make it in certain settings or not? And why don't you go? And he really pushed me on my own business. So the entrepreneurial was was a how to my what and why. It wasn't something that I set out to do. You know, that question that your mentor slash coach asked you, I think is such a important question. And sadly, it doesn't get asked so often early enough with not just women, with men as well. I think it's so important to, at some point, I can speak for myself. I didn't get asked that question nearly early enough. And I've, I've been an entrepreneur all my life, but that's evolved and that's changed. And, and that's such an impactful question, even having that. But in this choice of direction for you, had you had an experience yourself personally? Did you bump up against that proverbial glass ceiling? Or were you looking at what you were doing and going, hold it, you know, I'm more qualified or I'm as qualified. Were you having those kinds of conversations with yourself and said, no, I got to I got to nail this. Like, I got to get in here and unpack all this and and take it on. What was there that moment in time for you? There was definitely a time in my early career that was tough, um, really tough. And it was because. I think often as little girls, we're told we can be anything we want to be and do anything we want to do. But the reality is very nuanced. And I think we it would be great to inspire people to be bold earlier, but have these real conversations. And I kind of say that in the book, like this is real and raw talk about the state of play. And it's not always fun and rainbows and unicorns. You know, this is how women how we are disadvantaged, but that doesn't mean you have to get, um, you know, doesn't mean you have to feel held back. It just means you need different strategies and tools and to be super intentional about it. So in my early career, I definitely felt like there were so many tools and resources that helped me get that first job, but not a lot that helped me be successful in that first job. And so I also noticed that irrespective of gender, that there is this lack of support in the early career years. And I think it's heightened, the impacts of that are heightened for women because of all of the things I talked about, affinity bias, lack of networks, all of these aspects. But yeah, I mean, I felt like at the beginning of my books, you know, says I felt like I was floundering in an ocean without a life jacket, you know, and so many people had helped me get there, but then now what? And so I think we can really help equip people sooner 
um, to really navigate their career in an intentional, strategic way and, and take ownership rather than getting taken for a ride. I definitely think I got taken for a ride for a bit. Got it. Now, when you uh, talked earlier, you know, the book is really for, although there's a focus on women, it's there very appropriate for, you know, men and leaders, male leaders to read or male employers, perhaps. So when you look at your, you know, who wants to read this book, who's going to be attracted to this book? Is it somebody, is it some young, well, age aside, is it female that's going to be attracted to saying, I want to move my career forward. I feel like I'm being held back or there, I'm, I'm capable of more. I just don't know how to get there. What's kind of the narrative that somebody might be having that might be attracted to reading this book and taking it on and engaging it, with it? Yeah, I mean, I think there's so many. Um, I think it fills so many gaps. So one is what I mentioned before. It's people that know in their, you know, in their hearts, they're aspiring to be bolder and braver, but struggling to do that and really wanting a method and toolkit to help them do that. It's for the leaders and mentors and coaches that want to be more effective at coaching others. And even the parents that want to be more effective in raising bold girls and thinking about how to do that, which is such a gap. I mean, I've integrated some of this content into programs I've run for girls in high school and it's stuff I wish I had sooner. And then it's also for anyone that's really willing to wanting to be bolder and feeling like there's something more and, and they just want a way to do it. So it was interesting. I had this, you know, more, more senior level male share on Instagram the other day, like a picture of my book and his favorite quotes. And, you know, my book at the top says, you know, how women can reimagine risk. And he like crossed it out and posted how anyone, you know, um, so <laughs> so I've great. been really, um, really, really amazed by the response for people across levels. So I think there's so many different uses. It could apply for, um, you know, um, I'm doing some work with some universities and looking at Begin Boldly on campus. Um, and one great thing is because it's written like a curriculum, a lot of organizations don't have a lot of funding for early career women's programs, which I've shared. And, you know, there, you could do a chapter a month, 12 chapters, 12 months in a year, and then people have a curriculum to work through for the cost of a book. So those are the things that I'm really excited about in terms of really creating a ripple effect with this. That sounds so awesome. And I, I got stuck. I never got stuck. I heard all that you said. But one of the points that I wanted to share with listeners, and when you talked about for parents, I can't even count the number of guests I've had on the show. And we talked about what's the impact and how is it you did what you did. And so many have said that my parent, my dad, my mom, or my parents believed in me so strongly, sometimes to a fault, that I didn't know that failure was even failure because it was always, yeah, that's okay, keep going. And it was that. The, the belief they had in themselves driven by what their parents and how they were raised. And so having, you know, parents educate themselves to how they can be that influence, give them some tools, I think is just really powerful, you know, in the context of shaping and supporting our kids and being the best they can be and, you know, really rising to the top in whatever they take on. Yeah, I mean, I think parents and teachers, particularly when you're looking at um, girls, young women in in particularly at you know junior high, high school level, 
it there's there's so much that you can influence at that time and there's a simple concept in my book that I wish I had gotten earlier in my career and it's about choosing courage over confidence and I think that there has been way too much focus on cult- cultivating confidence in girls and young women but the majority of the senior level women I've interviewed or researched who have really been bold and brilliant, they do not show up confidently every day. And so when I was interviewing them, I was thinking, well, confidence is not a prerequisite for success. What is? And what I realized was they showed up courageously, even in the absence of confidence, even in the face of self-doubt. And then that's really the key to success. So I did a study and I looked at like, what would you prefer with most women and men, confidence or courage? And most said confidence. And so I, I did this whole book. It's like, if we're seeking the elusive feeling of confidence, it's very black and white. It can be very fleeting. And we're waiting to feel confident before we write a book, do a podcast, get up in front. We'll never do anything. And so instead focus on being courageous in the absence of confidence. And then confidence can be the you know output or byproduct. But I really want to flip the script on that. And that one concept, if I had that earlier in my career, uh, you know, even as a young, at a young age, I think it would have been really, really transformative. I don't know where I came to the quote, but the quote that I often use is confidence is rarely owned. It's almost always borrowed. And mm-hmm. when there is the absence of confidence, it means who can I borrow my confidence from, which means no one is there. And that plays into exactly what you said, which is then the understanding of being courageous when there isn't the confidence to borrow from somebody. And you have to walk into those scenarios to be courageous because ultimately you as a coach, myself as a coach, our clients, the people that we support, they're actually borrowing our confidence. Kids are borrowing the confidence from their parents. They're being told, you can do it. You got this. Move forward. Take one step at a time. All of the language that's used, it's borrowed confidence. But sometimes it's just not there. You're up against something that takes courage. And that really is the true test is, can you be courageous? Do you have the tools? Have you developed the skills to understand where you have to step in and be courageous. So I love that concept. And what you shared there was really kind of shone a light on the gap as, yeah, confidence is often borrowed, most often. But what if it's not there? Yeah. And I think the key is that just another concept is, I saw this quote the other day and it said, you know, what would you do if you knew you couldn't fail? And I actually think that's, you know, BS, I think, (laughs) We failure is one of the best things. We need to not avoid it. We need to face it and learn from it. And the question should be, what would you do if you knew that failure would lead to even greater growth? Like it should be totally reframed. The same with the idea about being fearless. Being fearless means you don't deeply care or invest in anything in life, whether it be love, relationships, a meaningful career, that you don't put anything on the line. And I actually think fear is one of the best indicators that there's an important choice to be made. And feeling that fear is almost like that almost trigger for you that, oh, there's an important choice here. And I have a choice on how I how I make that. And it's not about being fearless. It's about moving through fear with that courage in the face of it, risking failure. Like all of this stuff, I think the narratives significantly need to change so we can have bolder individuals uh, making really great moves in their careers in life. 
Yeah, I agree 100%. You know, when it comes to failure, what I've learned and what I've come to believe uh, for myself, and certainly I've learned it in working with so many small business owners, is that I've come to believe that we don't fear failure. We really don't. What we fear is the judgment of others. Should we not accomplish that outcome to hit that outcome? We fear the the not the failure, but the judgment of our peers, of our workmates, perhaps, or you know, somebody in the same industry. And that really is what shuts us down. And I know for myself, you know, I do lots of things where I don't, you know, I don't <laughs> don't hit the target. But at the end of the day, that's not what bothers me. You know, what bothers me might be if somebody was to judge that. And while at this point in my life, I don't quite frankly, I don't care. But <laughs> it took a while to get there, right? What's your yeah. thoughts on that? Yeah. So I think human beings, we're relational beings and we create part of our identity through views of others, whether we like it or not. And I think that there's tools that you can use to ensure that you're not using extrinsic measures as much of success and using more internal measures. Are you making movements on the things that matter to you, right? But I would be doing this audience a disservice to say we're ever going to get to the point where we don't care at all. And I think it's really important, though, to think about how failure can become part of a powerful narrative. And what I've learned is you may not be able to control the outcome of a risk you take, but you can control the story you tell about that and what you learn. And so for me, I keep on hearing, and your show's doing this. Um, in my research, I heard all of these younger women saying, we want to know more. We want to know the woman behind the bio. We want to know more than the shiny accolades and stories of triumph and you know shiny pictures. We want to know the stories of defeat, of challenges, of failures overcome, of, of difficult trade-offs. And in some of my prior research reports, I've told stories or interviewed women about difficult decisions they made around families, divorce, loss, cultural conflicts, um, bias and harassment, you know, all of these things. And I think what you're doing is exactly that your podcast is giving people insight into the person behind the bio, you know, really trying to strip back some of that. But I think people vulnerability and failure and how you understand that and make that part of your narrative can actually be so compelling as long as you're learning and growing from it and sharing those insights with others. So I would focus less on I failed and what are people thinking of me, but I failed. What am I going to learn? How am I going to improve in the future? And how am I building my narrative to reflect this important step? You know, so when we look at Christy Hunter Arscott, so you've got a book, you're young, you're beautiful, you've got a cool business, you live in Bermuda. So on the surface, you know, <laughs> wow, that's freaking amazing. But I know, and you know, that you clawed and fought your way to where you are today. And you fight battles every day to, to grow and to be the best you can be and to make a difference. When you talk about your mentor, your coach earlier on that asked you that really great question, which is what is the impact you want to have on the world? When you look at that, can you share with us what the impact was that you wanted to have the world on the world back then versus what your view might be today in terms of now that you've grown, now that you've shown up, now that you've been and fight and clawed and gone down that rocky path, you know, has that changed? Has it expanded? Where is it 
then versus today, Christy? Yeah, I think I'll just be, yeah, kind of brutally honest here. I think it's always been along the same vein, but my how has changed and diversified. So when I went out on my own, I was trained as a consultant and I was writing a lot more articles, doing research and working a lot more with companies around changing their culture and building more inclusive and diverse cultures and that being a way to move the needle because that's where I think there's so much opportunity for change. And there's so many leading or best practices that I feel like if invested in properly could really, really be powerful. However, it's hard working with companies. Sometimes the fruits of your labor don't show for five or 10 years. You, you look at recessions, competing priorities, budgets, level of investment and understanding in the issues. And even with great intention, sometimes leaders aren't prepared to really be bold and make the tough decisions um, around these issues. So although it's aligned. I've now focused as well on the individual um, through coaching and through writing this book, because I realize that if I'm working organization by organization and trying to make change on that small level, we could be waiting a long time. And in the meantime, I need to focus on equipping individuals to navigate irrespective of where their organizations are. I also knew if I was working just coaching by coaching client, I would have a limited impact over the course of my life. But by writing a book, I can get it in the hands of people who could never afford coaching or their companies won't allow it. And it's almost like provides more equitable access for individuals. So that's kind of how I've evolved from a more organizational to a more individualized impact. I still do both, but it's been really nice to be able to diversify that focus kind of to the same end. Okay, so that's on the how, but what if do you have a mission statement? Do you have something that, you know, that you ground to? Yeah, I mean, it goes back to just wanting women to build bold and brilliant careers and lives. Like that is it for me. Like I want to transform how people think about risk taking. I want to give them the tools that they can do it and they know that they have a how. And I don't like this book was very careers related. I don't think it stops with that. I think it's travel experiences, you know, uh, just being bold outside relationships. There's so many things where society tries to, you know, put a little bow around what a woman, woman should be or should not be at home or in the workplace. And there's so many alternative methods of living and leading and loving and I'd love to bring in the long term more visibility to some of those bold stories um, and inspire and equip others to do the same in their lives. So where do you give guidance, perhaps, to women? And I'm not sure I'm going to ask the right question, but I'll ask it anyways, and then we can kind of riff off it and see where it goes. But, you know, there are, I think, within any corporation, with any company, what regardless of the size, it always comes back to culture and environment. And, you know, one of the things that I've come to realize over the years is that culture and environment has to be focused on. It has to be talked about. It has to be decided on. It's not a top-down kind of thing. Well, this is the culture we're going to have, and this is the environment. No, it's got to be inclusive. It has to be 
a team of people that come together and define what that culture is and what the standards of performance are and what the environment is. And the reason I kind of go off in that long-winded way is that you've probably had that experience. I kind of heard it a little bit in what you said, which is you get into the corporation, you can have, you know, so they go, okay, we're going to go to uh, Christy Hunter R. Scott's workshop and she's going to work with us for the day. And you, you come in and you work your ass off and you, do what you do for the day and everybody's all fired up. And then they go back to the office and it's like, wah, 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 you know, because yeah. the culture and the environment hasn't been created to actually take on this new thought process and to embrace this new learning that you've shared with people. And so that's a long-winded kind of background to a simple, I think a simple question. What do you say to women who are in an environment where they are bumping up against this world of not being appreciated or being undervalued or hitting the glass ceiling or whatever conversation that might be is is your message simply be courageous trust yourself don't put up with it move on what's your what's your kind of guidance in that scenario christy yeah so it it happens a lot and i think it depends on how they describe the environment and the culture to me and isolating whether it's just a one man manager issue or an overall um, issue across enterprise wide in terms of the culture and, and whether there's isolated incidents or patterns of behavior. So all of those things help guide, you know, my advice, as well as the individual's career desires and, and what they're looking for and how impacted they are by negative cultures. Some people take it home and it manifests physically and mentally and emotionally and other people do not. And so there's different thresholds as well. What I do say is like, look, here are some tried and true tools to help you negotiate, advocate for more, be more courageous, um, you know, connect and network with others and close the networking gap, make more asks in negotiations, advocate for others, try new experiments, you know, be more persuasive. So that's really what that book is, is this toolkit of things to try, but I, it is a try it and tweak it approach. I can't promise you that despite all of the research and work I've done, that this is going to work exactly for you and your culture and your organization. When things don't, and there's a pattern of behavior or it's enterprise-wide, or and that really conflicts with your values as an individual and your career aspirations, that's when you make the question, you really raise the question of like whether it makes sense to stay or go. You know, it's a fundamental belief that I have, and I have lots of evidence, which, and it's something that you just said, which is if you can't align with the values of the organization that you're working for with, if you can't align with the values of the pointy end of the spear of that particular organization in terms of how they operate, that to me is always the deciding factor. Because if you're not being true to your values, that becomes a question of integrity, that then becomes a question of stress and to your point, mental health, and even then easily physical health because that all manifests physically. And, and so I think that's such an important lesson for, I wish I would have gotten that lesson younger rather than older, but it's, it's a, such a good lesson to get whenever you get it. And I think it's really important. So if in the context of that book, or even what you shared here today, if people could really get that, be really clear on what your values are and know that if you don't align with the values in the environment that you're in, 
if you can't change the environment, if you can't be a catalyst for change, then uh, from my perspective, it's time to move on. It's time to look for other, you know, rosier fields, if you will. Yeah. And I think sometimes we get caught in the cycle of thinking this is the only job or this makes sense to stay. And in most cases, most of us stay too long. I've definitely been in a situation in my life. And I should mention that this can apply if you're an entrepreneur to working with toxic clients, right? Um, and you can be like, well, I need this income. Well, well, at what cost, right? And so I went through a period, my husband calls it the dark ages, where I became, I was dealing with a very, very difficult client um, in hard economic times and difficult team. And I lost my hair. I lost a lot of weight. I was really impatient. Um, I stopped kind of taking up space for lack of a better term. Um, and I definitely felt like I lost some of myself in that process. And it took a while to even realize it because until someone shows the mirror to you in terms of many ways, like, whoa, Christy, what's going on? You know, um, it, it, it sometimes can be hard to see when you're in this spiral, but I really think it's important to have others. And I talk about this a little bit as well, like your support network in life, none of us are an island. We all are interconnected. Find people that will be real with you, that will support you, that will be your safety net when risks go wrong, when things go well, um, that are critical stakeholders in your life and career. Um, and I always say, pull yourself around success advisors too, people have, who have been bold, because you'll be closer to where the risks happen. You'll learn from them. Like this journey of life isn't about one big risk. It's about continuous improvement and always evolving. And that's what's exciting. Like we're never done if we're doing this right. I love that. That's such great guidance. And, you know, it is really that, you know, if we don't get information or input, I guess, then we have the circular conversation in our brain. You know, how many times do you have to have the same conversation with yourself before you realize that, you know, hold it, I need input, I need something else. Hence, a book, a great book can make a big difference. I've read several books over the past few years, especially through COVID, that really changed how I view the world and really opened me up to growth and a different level of understanding. And, you know, something like your book, you know, begin boldly, given the context for the book could really have an impact if you're struggling in that kind of conversation with yourself, that circular conversation that we yeah. all fall into, sadly. Yeah. I mean, I, and I think most of us aspire to be bolder and braver. Like, I think mm -hmm. that's why it hit home, it really hits home, irrespective of gender, career stage, how you're showing up in this world. Because if, if we ask most human beings, like, you know, have you shied away from a risk before? The answer is yes. If most of us would be like to be bolder and braver, most of us would say yes. And it, it's not always in a career context. It might be taking up that new sport that I've or that new pursuit that I've always wanted to do. And I've always told myself I'm not going to do it, or it's too late, or I'm not ready, or I'm not capable. And, you know, I, I think that using these frameworks throughout your life and career, both inside and outside of work is really where I want to see this go. That's fantastic. Tell me a little bit about, you know, the book, Christy, in terms of your writing it. Now, when you, was it an epiphany? Was it a moment in time where you go, shit, I got to write this book? Was it your publicist that said, Christy, you got to write a book? You know, what was it that was kind of got you going on this? And uh, had you sit down and do what it takes to write a book, which is not an easy task. No, not at all. And um, so I felt like I had a book in me for a while, like I've been working and researching in this space for over 15 years. And 
particularly with the focus on hitting people earlier, as soon as we can in their careers, not waiting till it's too late. Um, and I had all of these insights, but I wasn't sure how they were going to take shape. And so I was working with someone on my proposal and my idea is like just having someone else push me to crystallize things. We can't do these things in like eco chambers or silos. Like it's really an iterative process of other thinkers. And then when I found my publisher, which was a great um, match because Barrett Kohler um, when they accepted my proposal, they're really focused on publishing books that creates a world that works for all. And that was so aligned with kind of my mission and talk about values alignment. Um, I really, you know, loved their ethos, their focus. And my editor, Anna Leinberger, was really the one that helped crystallize these ideas. So it's not like suddenly you wake up and you have to begin boldly. No, you you work on every chapter a million times over. You have copy editors tear it apart, five of them, and you go back and you do more. And so talk about dealing with failure and questions and doubt. The whole process for me, particularly during COVID was riddled with it. But again, I always went back to my why, like that for me was so strong. And I'm like, if I am fearing critique of other people, like you say, which we all do, if I'm fearing failure, if I'm fearing like, who am I to put this out into the world? Any little like inner critic work you know, you, you just say, what impact do I want to have? It goes back to what that coach asked me. And I, I always go back to that because this is my way to have that really broader, broader impact. So yeah. And then in terms of the writing process, to go back to your question, it was hard. Like I'd be lying if I didn't say like it was absolute hell at certain times. Um, I hold myself up into little places. I like would say I need to, you know, leave like my, I, I have a five-year-old, my husband and my five-year-old, there were like weeks where I was like, I'm going to like somewhere else and going to be by myself. And it would be, you know, sometimes 15, 16 hour days of heads down work. And then I would get brain blocks because I'm much more of, of a speaker in terms of expressing how I feel than a writer. So I got to the point where I was leaving myself voice notes and then transcribing them because I could capture things like, Christy, what would you say to a group of women? What are all your learnings? And that made it a lot easier. So anyone interested in writing a book who's struggling, try the try the voice note in yourself. <laughs> you know, it's interesting that um, you, you said something that I've heard many authors say, which is, I had a book in me. And I've often said, I don't really have a book in me. I've been, it's been suggested to me on more than one occasion this far into my career, if you will, is that I should write a book. And I just don't feel like I have a book in me, but it's interesting to note that I uh, did a, uh, some research reports that uh, when all the reports were done that I'd done and I was really into it and I was really enjoying it. I was just digging the whole, <laughs> the whole research part of it. I think it was at about 85,000 words when all was said and done. And, and, <laughs> and my buddy said, you could have wrote a book for Christ's sakes. Anyways, well, kind of, yeah. I did. It just wasn't published that same way. <laughs> but no, it's so true. Sometimes you get to the end and then you have more than you actually need. Um, but yes, you could have written a book. However, I think, again, there's many different ways to make impact. And this platform is so powerful. A book is powerful. You know, video or news interviews can be great. So you've chosen one that's going to reach so many people and it's just a different mode. So tell me a little bit about some of your research. You know, we I want to go back to some of the conversation that we had and where I don't want to step over is in 
social media and the impact that it has. Now, you as an author, of course, you're having to put yourself out there. You're having to, you know, do a podcast or put yourself out on social media to get your book out there, get your message out there. And how are you feeling about that? Or how do you think even your, just what you've learned, your own view of what social media is to people, what it means and the impact it's having. I know for myself that, and it's not even an age thing. I'm just watching social media evolve and I'm I'm just backing out more and more. I have to do what I have to do from a business aspect of it. But I do find it interesting that, number one, I see people that they're so disconnected. Who they are on social media and who they are is just like, I'm going, are you kidding me? It's just like, so not that, right? And then I'm seeing some of the negative stuff that goes on and what is your experience with it in the research you've done? How is social media impacting women? How is it impacting the work environment? What's your kind of thoughts on this, Kristen? <laughs> I could take up another five hours talking about this, but um, it's an important conversation, I believe. Yeah. And particularly um, there's a lot of research and I'm not going to go into it right now around the impact for girls, um, particularly young girls at a more impressionable stage and the level of filters we're using, not just on the physical, I could say on how someone's skin or body looks, but just a filtered life, a filtered lens. It's any social media is generally a highlight reel. And so one thing I do endeavor, although I haven't been strategic about it enough yet, is you know on certain platforms, I want to tell more stories of failure and overcoming failure and what that looks like so we can normalize some of these things in a powerful way. One of my goals also, like you, um, you mentioned like what kind of impact I want to have. And I was mentioning that, you know, there's this whole concept of, you know, um, aspiration directly being linked to visibility, like, and the fact that you cannot be what you cannot see. Well, if all we see are these kind of curated influencers, I mean, sometimes I don't even know what they're influencing, but then we're doing a disservice to the next generation of young women. And I would love to highlight some more of the stories of women that are making bold moves in different ways in their careers and lives that are really admirable. And again, aligned with kind of a value set that resonates. Um, I think the, the positive, um, I've talked a little bit about the negative, is that there's created a platform for more entrepreneurs and often women, um, if you look at trajectories, um, are at home more than men in terms of caregiving roles, if we look at the gender balance at home, um, if we look at elder care, and social media and the virtual workplace in many ways has created more access to people and networks than would have happened um, just working a nine to five that's presence driven. So in certain ways, it's equalized access more, which has been really interesting. But there are so many pros and cons around this and around how we show up in the world in different platforms. But I think the biggest thing is creating content that delivers value. And I always say to myself, like, I, you know, you're looking at these, uh, you know, Instagram photos of certain people and is this creating value? And not every post needs to, you know, be something that is like life shattering. It could be just you sharing something you're doing in your life or whatever it may be to make it more human again, show the woman behind the, the bio. But again, it goes back to my why, the impact I want to have. And I always try to ground in, is this going to impact people positively? But um, I wish we could have more of that lens. I wish we could have more discussion around 
really the negative narratives and impact of overly curated highlight reels on younger individuals in particular. Well, and of course, if you've done it, well, you would have done the research, but, you know, there's certainly a lot of evidence and it's basically a known fact about how the algorithms work and how they show up and really how they play to whatever is going on in your world, given not only what you say, but what you're watching and what's coming across your feeds. And and it just gets fed. It's just, it blows my mind that, you know, that's what's really going on. And it's, uh, I think it was, I want to say it was Joe Rogan who has got young daughters or a young daughter, one of his, one or his kids, whatever that might be. He actually read all of the stuff around TikTok and he read all of the terms, the conditions and all of the things. And uh, he read it out loud. And basically it is mind blowing what they draw, not only from you directly, what you're watching or seeing on TikTok, but what other apps you're using and what you're doing within those apps. So it is so, it's such yeah. an intertwined world that he's going, and my my kids are, I'm letting my kids do this TikTok thing. And I'm going, no, I'm pulling you off right now. You can't use your phone anymore. It's, But then he's realizing that this is what is, and it's how things are unfolding in the world and the impact of social media, to your point, because we're you know talking about women and, and particularly uh, the impact on young women and, and the self-esteem part of that as well. I can't imagine, I just cannot imagine going to school today, given text messaging and phones and all the things that happen. You know, we talk about bullying in the old days. It was somebody came up and pushed you down. You know, the bullying today still has that. But right now, the bullying is about what can happen on social media, the, the how quickly a message spreads. And I really have a lot of compassion for the kids and what they must be dealing with in school today and the parents that are having to navigate all of that. Yeah, I mean, it's there's some great work and resources out there for parents to around this, but it is scary. And it's scary how much everything about our lives are trapped. I mean, even with the with abortion legislation in the US, you know, the discussion around women shouldn't use ovulation trackers on their own phones, because then there's some other party being aware of anything and you shouldn't search things. And, you know, this is getting to, to me, um, it's not just about technology, it's about bodily autonomy as well. But I think that there's such an intertwining um, toxic area for people in terms of what, what, what's private for us anymore. Um, I do also want to just touch upon, you know, body image, and this is not, you know, anything in my book or anything like that, but I've always you know, had an interest in that. And when I was a freshman at Brown, I wanted to look at the impact of media at the time, not even social media on, because it was TV, right? So on women's body image. And I said, it's so hard because we can't measure what it was in the US pre-media and TV show and post. So I said, I need a counterfactual where I can control for that variable. And I found this study of women in Fiji and the fact that before media, Western media coming in, you know, um, the women of Fiji, it was celebrated to be larger, to look ch- like you can bear children. There were all these cultural things. And then there was the integration. I think it was like the early 90s of Melrose, Melrose Place and Heather Locklear and all of these Western standards of beauty. 
and how the trajectory of those reporting with eating disorders and body dysmorphia and all of these other things went up. And so for me, this was like almost like a petri dish experiment of let's sprinkle in this one variable and control for it and look at it that I studied at that you know young age. And I, I still remember that because now we're not just talking about a TV show you turn on and turn off. You're talking about endless opportunity to access data and such filtered data and images. Um, so it's something we all have to be aware of is, as we talk about being bold and taking risks, it's you know, how do we normalize certain things and then call into question some of the data and images and things that, that are projected to the people in our lives. So is there a message, you know, as we start to wind down a little bit, um, I don't want to step over anything. And I want to, from your perspective, you know, when you look at what you've done in the research, writing the book, the work you've done, the work you do with individuals or organizations, is there a I don't know, a thread of commonality of things that women do or don't do that, you know, you see as a, as a repeat, something that you would say, you know, be, be aware of this or be aware of that. Is there a common thread that you would want to share? Yeah. So I definitely don't want to paint all women with one brush and I've seen lots of variation, but I have seen certain trends in the women that I work with and have researched and I, I will share those with you. And one is uh, reiterating what I said before, waiting to feel confident or ready before taking on something that feels scary or with a risk of failure. And, and, and I think that that actually stalls a lot of individuals. Another is um, thinking about risk in very limited terms. It's only if you're an entrepreneur, it's only if in finance, it's only, these are often male terms. I mean, risk could mean advocating for someone else in your workplace, you know, raising your hand in a meeting if you're afraid of speaking, you know, offering to run a proposal or a team meeting. So I think that that this more expansive view of risk is something that I've seen a real need for. Um, another thing that and I just actually ran a session for a global Fortune 100 company today and I was talking about the fact that a lot of women feel like they have to have all the answers and they come into networking situations thinking I need to have something to say. They come into negotiations thinking they need to have something to say. And really one of the most powerful things is not what you have to say, but what you have to ask. And actually flipping that script and focusing on curious questioning helps people deal with some fears and hesitations. And just, I guess the, the final thing, I mean, I could list off so many, but just the reminder that we're not fixed, we're fluid, we're malleable, we're ever changing and ever evolving and committing to continuous improvement and growth. That has to be a lifelong journey. I think sometimes we think there's an end point or that next shiny object, or I'm going to feel better once that book's published. And then you start thinking, oh, this is what I could do better. This is what's next. So um, just that understanding. Um, and finally, I'm just going to say like, have faith in your capabilities to figure it out. Marie Forleo, who, uh, you know, is an entrepreneur in her own right said, wrote this book, Everything's Figure Outable. And I really think that life becomes a lot easier when you think, you know what, irrespective of the outcome of this, I will be able to figure it out, even if I have to pull upon different people to support me or resources or ask the right questions. So those are the things that I think I've seen as trends and kind of the opposite actions I really hope they take. And such good uh, guidance. You know, one of my good friends and and kind of right-hand guy in business and 
has a, his own philosophy and we talk about decision making a lot and how difficult it is for people to make decisions and you know he's kind of we joke about it all the time but he you know he's the kind of guy that says okay I'll jump out of the plane without a parachute I just trust that I'll be able to put the parachute together on the way down I'll figure it out and this is always you know something that I think in the decision making process what you brought up in there I think is so important in the book you mentioned you know figure outable it if that's what it was. The point is, is that when we go through this, even as we're making decisions in our life and, and for women who are trying to shift or change into their own careers or their own work environment, is you make that decision, you move forward, trusting that you'll figure it out, mm-hmm. knowing that your commitment is to figure it out. But if you start there, rather than say, I need to figure it all out before I get started, it's a oh. fundamental shift, right? You're so right. So this is actually, that's such a critical differentiation that you've just made. And something I talk about in the book is one of the biggest things that hold women back that I haven't mentioned uh, yet is something I call analysis paralysis. And Mm -hmm. it's when you get paralyzed by analyzing, analyzing pros and cons, analyzing potential outcomes, analyzing what could go wrong. And ultimately, analysis has its limitations, and too much analysis is ultimately only limiting you. So when you talk about decisions and having you know, trust in your ability to figure it out, I talk a lot in the book about instead of um, on erring on the side of action, and Herminia Arbara, who's a professor um, out of Europe, wrote all of these amazing books on experimentation. And I used to always think as a you know, young woman, I need to analyze look at all of the scenarios, A-type personality, let me figure it all out, and then act. And that meant that action sometimes for me was too far delayed. And I see people doing that too. And she encourages people to act, then analyze. And the output of your actions are just data and for that improvement and refining those views of yourself and your identity. And I think that's so powerful. So it links directly to what you just said. Fantastic, because I just so so see that on an on an ongoing basis. I've seen it with myself. I've certainly seen it with many of the people that I've worked with. So you've been very generous with your time. And as we start to wind down, first off, I am definitely committing to reading your book, Begin Boldly. I think it's awesome. I love the context for it. And uh, I probably won't do the work book side of it, but I am going to read it. <laughs> Maybe I will. Who knows? Maybe Who I'll, knows? Maybe I'll use <laughs> those two. <laughs> <laughs> so as we go along, I do like to wind down and just have a little bit of fun and some uh, interesting uh, questions. Maybe not so interesting, but some fun questions for my guests. And they're a little bit rapid fire. Other than your book, what's, a, what's your favorite book or what's a book that you've gifted over the years? I have to pick one. <laughs> Okay, okay. Two. Cleo, Cleo Wade, Heart Talk. I've never heard of that book. What is it? Tell me, give me a little more information on it. So Cleo Wade is an amazing, um, she writes poetry. So it's ah. not in the line of this, but she has such deep work and soulful work that is so inspiring and in how we think about resistance around how we think about rights, about our own lives, love, careers. It's very raw and real. It's great. Cool. It's one of those books where you pick it up, open it up, read a page, and then digest it. Yeah. And you can keep it by your bedside for the rest of your life and read like a snippet whenever you're looking for something. So it's uh, it's great. Fantastic. Do you have a favorite inspirational quote, Christy? Mm. One that stands up for you? 
So one for me is, um, is the quote that, I mean, so two things, like one, I'm going to give you two, because one I, is, is a cop out because it's from my book. You just over deliver. You just over deliver all the time. Okay, go. Sorry, sorry. <laughs> it's, um, it's from my book, Brilliant Careers and Lives Are Seldom Built Without Bold Moves. I think about that every single day, mm. um, which is really, really powerful for me. Um, and then other than that, there's a quote that says, I'm part of all that I've met. And for me, just the the level of knowledge and insight I get from conversations in life and interactions is really kind of built into the tapestry of who I am. So I love that too. Fantastic. Favorite swear word? <laughs> Probably fuck. <laughs> Let's yeah. be real. I think my I think my autocorrect has shown me a million ducks throughout my life. So I think I would be lying if I didn't say duck. <laughs> yep. I hear you. Room, your desk, or your car? What do you clean first? Uh, desk. Oh, okay. Disappointed. You didn't expect that. It's not my car. <laughs> that's the last to go. I have a car full of dog hair and sand. So, hey, that's what kind of dogs? Hair. What kind of dogs? That, I, I'm gonna put. I'm gonna add that to my question. What kind of dogs do you? Own? I have um, an English cocker spaniel called Junior, and he's amazing. But I've always wanted just like a beat up Jeep with dogs and adventure and sand and towels and everyone outdoors all the time. So I am not about the clean car. <laughs> oh, I hear you. We, my wife and I own uh, two, we have two Bernese mountain dogs as part of oh, our family. And <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I get it. Do you, have a, uh, do you have a favorite tune or band that you listen to? Ooh. So I'm pausing because there are so many, but. Um, These are hard questions, I know. I know. No. So I'm originally from Bermuda and my husband's actually originally from Jamaica. So I listen to a lot of reggae ah. and in particular, the work of chronics is incredibly inspirational. I'm I love reggae and, uh, but I, I'm not like, it's not like I'm a music file and I listen to a lot of reggae, but I love reggae when I hear it. Of course, Bob Marley always comes to mind. I think he can't. Yeah. Not listen to Bob. But of course not. <laughs> do you have a uh, favorite movie that pops up for you? No. What do you want to hear from God when you get to the gates? Mm. I think it's something around that you've done something in life that's bigger than yourself and more enduring than yourself. Beautiful. And Christy, last question. What are you grateful for today? Oh gosh. Um, these are so good. <laughs> um, so for me, I am particularly grateful that my book has created a platform for me to reach more people and to even connect and have these kind of conversations. I didn't think I would enjoy these interviews and connection points as much as I have. And they have been, they have infused me with like so much energy and more passion towards what I want to do. So it's really that platform. Um, I'm very, very grateful for it. And I am always grateful for my guests and the opportunity to meet individuals like yourself. And my listeners should know is that as I sit on Zoom looking at Christy, she really hasn't stopped smiling at all for the whole interview. <laughs> That's and, me, sorry. <laughs> and you've got a beautiful smile. And I'm grateful to have had the opportunity to uh, speak with you and for you to share some of the insights and the knowledge that you have. And I'm always grateful 
for my wife and my chosen family and of course my dogs and uh, this platform as well. And uh, I'm grateful for my listeners. So Christy, thank you so much for joining me today on the Everyday Millionaire Podcast. Thanks so much for having me and take care. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening. If you found value in the podcast, please take the time to rate and review and share with others, share with your friends. As it is my goal to always improve and to provide the highest value for you, the listener, if you have any comments, suggestions, or questions you'd like answered, please email me at ceo at raincanada.com. That's ceo at reincanada.com. I look forward to hearing from you. And until next time, Patrick out.